Folks, you are listening to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we are broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is WFMP-LP Louisville, Forward Radio, 106.5 FM on your radio dial. And if you want to find out a little bit more about our station, you can go to forwardradio.org. And since we're live streaming now, if you go to that website, you click on a button, you can listen to us anywhere in the state, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. So, folks, we're going to talk about uh, a couple things, uh, you know, people wrongfully convicted of crimes and should wrongfully convicted people admit guilt to win parole. And when people are found to be wrongfully convicted, uh, you know, what should happen exactly? So just uh, so we'll have some reference points, uh, uh, the New York Times did a story on Monday, December the 6th. uh, talking about uh, should wrongfully convicted people falsely admit guilt to win parole. And so what, what's that all about? Well, you'll see uh, Jeffrey Clark and Gar Keith Harden were victims of an unjust murder prosecution near Louisville, Kentucky during the mid-1990s. Now, this is from the New York Times story by David Leonhardt. A jailhouse informant made up a story about one of them confessing. The police did not pursue a lead involving an actual confession to the murder. A dishonest detective, Mark Handy, later discovered to have fabricated evidence testified against Clark and Harden. And the prosecutor misled the jury about a fingerprint and hair sample at the crime scene. The jury convicted the two men then both in their early 20s, and they were sentenced to life in prison. They would spend more than 20 years there before Lawyers for the Innocence Project helped win their release based on DNA evidence and the exposure of the detective's dishonesty. At that point, you might have expected that the criminal justice system would apologize to the two men and leave them alone. Instead, prosecutors announced plans to try them again for the murder and even added a perjury charge against Clark. Why? Partly because in an attempt to win parole while in prison, Clark had decided to admit to the murder and express remorse. Parole hearings create a terrible catch-22 for the wrongfully convicted. If they admit guilt, they can undermine any attempt to overturn their conviction. If they continue to assert their innocence, they can doom their best chance at freedom, which is parole, because parole applications effectively require statements of re. Morse. Then in the same uh, story, it goes to another example. Uh, uh, Joseph Gordon, a 78-year-old man in New York State, already served more than his minimum sentence of 25 years for a 1991 murder, and multiple prison officials and guards have supported his parole application. Gordon has the character and moral compass to return to society as a productive member of his community, wrote a former superintendent at 
Fishkill Correctional Facility where Gordon is incarcerated. But the parole board has refused to release him. The chief reason, according to the board, is Gordon's continuing insistence of his innocence. Uh, can read Gordon's full story in a recent time article by Tom Robbins. Details of the case are messy and tragic. According to the opinion of this writer, uh, Gordon clearly committed a crime. He covered up the killing of a 38-year-old doctor who may have been having a sexual relationship with Gordon's 16-year-old son. Gordon says that his son killed the doctor and the cover-up was an attempt to protect his son. I was not going to put my son in prison, Gordon said. Now, this is what the writer says. After reading the case, I don't feel confident about what happened. But there are good reasons to doubt that Gordon committed the murder, and his lawyers argue that guilt is no longer the central question anyway. They told me that they are confident he would have been released by now if he had simply abandoned his innocence claim based on his age, his prison record, and the pattern of other parole decisions. Now, according to the writer who wrote this story, he wants to use this story as a jumping off point for another discussion. And the writer is David Leonhardt of the New York Times. So Leonhardt wants to talk about how the United States has the world's largest incarcerated population with more than 2 million people in prison or jail. According to Leonhardt, most other countries take a radically different approach to criminal justice. And then he has a chart and it's got prison population rates, and uh, it's got a, a 200 incarcerated per 100,000 people in your population. It's got the U.S., unfortunately, uh, first, Australia, second, Mexico, England, and Wales, China, Canada, France, Italy, Germany, Denmark, and Japan. Now, if you look at this uh, chart, of course, Japan has the lowest number of people incarcerated, uh, but it's it's got kind of a... Uh, you know, to make it visual, it's got, uh, I guess you'd call it, um, uh, uh, no pun intended, bars going across the page. And the United States bar is about five times as long as, say, the uh, even the Australian bar, which is number two as far as incarceration rates. In other words... The United States, the richest country in the world, incarceration rates are so much higher to every other quote-unquote civilized country uh, that there's no comparison. And the question is, why would that be? I mean, this is me talking, not the writer. Uh, you've got the richest country in the world. Uh, uh, why in the world would the incarceration, does the United States have more bad people? How can that be? What are the odds on that? And then what I've always said, the reason the United States has more people in jail, because it wants to have more people in jail, it has more people in jail, not because it has more b bad people or American people commit more crimes. It just wants to have more people in jail. The country wants that. Uh, it's not to uh, reduce crime, suppress crime. Uh, uh, it just wants to have more. Just like, you know. The phenomenon of the richest country in the world having homeless people roaming around all of our major cities 
uh, uh, homeless, houseless, whatever word you want to use now, uh, 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 poverty, uh, people living in uh, uh, shacks, uh, people uh, living without running water, uh, people living without a way to, uh, you know, health healthily flush their refuse, their human waste away, people who live in houses with quote unquote straight pipes going back into the creek. And of course, in the small towns and rural areas, you know, there are people who don't have a healthy way to flush away their human waste, and there's no garbage collection. So you wonder, uh, you know, in the richest country in the world, why, why, why? But to get back to David Leonhardt's article, now in the New York Times, this is, this is our jumping off point. Uh, he goes back, goes on to say. Um, uh, goes on to write uh, more correctly. The starkest injustice is a large number of people in prison for crimes they did not commit. This morning, tens and thousands of Americans woke up behind bars because of wrongful convictions. Consider that one academic analysis of death row inmates found 4.1 percent, that is 4.1 one percent of them deserve to be exonerated uh, an estimate called conservative another study focusing on sexual assault cases estimated a wrongful conviction rate of 11.6 percent whatever the true number it is large enough for alarm our criminal justice system regularly puts a higher priority on winning a conviction than on achieving justice. And black and Latino Americans are dis disproportionately imprisoned as a result, studies show. Now, this is David Leonhardt talking of the New York Times. The biggest policy question is how to minimize wrongful convictions. In recent years, a reform movement, including political conservatives, moderates, and progressives, has been trying to do so. Among their ideas, ban testimony from jailhouse informants, require the recording of interrogations, expand post-conviction DNA testing, and increase penalties for prosecutors and police who lie or manipulate evidence. Yet changing the rules around parole can also make a difference, especially given how many unjustly incarcerated people will not be helped by changes that apply to future cases. People who maintain their innocence remain in an impossible situation, said Michelle Lewin, executive director of the Parole Preparation Project. Currently, some prisoners decide that their best option is to admit guilt falsely. Hugh Burton offers an excruciating example. At a parole hearing, he dropped his claims of innocence and admitted to stabbing his mother, Keziah, to death in their Bronx apartment in 1989 when he was 16 years old. 
He had been convicted after police officers coerced a confession from him. They decided to focus on him instead of an obvious suspect, a neighbor who had a violent criminal record and who was discovered driving Keziah's car six days after the killing. In 2019, a Bronx judge vacated Burton's conviction. One way to prevent parole dilemmas like Burton is for parole boards to make decisions based more on a person's rehabilitation and risk to the community and less on their stated guilt or innocence. Julia Salazar, a Democrat from Brooklyn in the New York State Senate, has proposed a bill that would do so. The bill has significant support in the legislature, but it remains unclear whether it will become law. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul has not announced her position on it. So, uh, oh, just as a note, uh, you know, for uh, for something that's not in this article, uh, uh, Bill Cosby never acknowledged any guilt and finally got out on appeal. Uh, it's amazing that uh, he w- he was strong enough to do that at his age and uh, his level of health. Amazing. So we um, go to another uh, New York Times story. Uh, this one by Alexandra Alter and Karen Zarek, November thirtieth, twenty twenty one. Alice Siebold apologizes to man wrongly convicted of raping her. Anthony Broadwater spent 16 years in prison after the author, uh, Alice Siebold is uh, white and the man she falsely identified as black. She, uh, Alice, Anthony Broadwater spent <clears throat> 16 years in prison after the, after the author identified him as her attacker as she described in her memoir, Lucky. Its publisher said Tuesday that it would stop distributing the book. So it goes on to, uh, uh, to, to read, Alice Seabold, best-selling author of the memoir Lucky and the novel the Lovely Bones apologized publicly to a man who was wrongly convicted of raping her in 1982 after she had identified him in court as her attacker. The apology came eight days after the conviction of the man, Anthony J. Broadwater, was vacated by a state court judge in Syracuse, New York, who concluded in consultation with the local district attorney and Mr. Broadwater's lawyers that the case against him was deeply flawed. 
as a result of a conviction, Mr. Broadwater, 61, that's how old he is, spent 16 years in prison before being released in 1998 and was forced to register as a sex offender. In a statement posted on the website Medium, Ms. Siebold, who described the rape and the ensuing trial in Lucky, said she regretted having unwittingly played a part in a system that sent an innocent man to jail. I am sorry, most of all, for the fact that the life you could have led was unjustly robbed from you, she wrote. And I know that no apology can change what happened to you and never will. It has taken me these past eight days to comprehend how this could have happened. Mrs. Siebold's statement was, or Ms. Siebold, it's it's MS period here, was reported earlier by the Associated Press. Her publisher, Scribner, said she was not available for additional comment. (sighs) Scribner said last week it had no plans to update the memoir's text based on Mr. Broadwater's exoneration. But uh, it later said that that the company would cease distribution of Lucky while it and Miss Seabold consider how the work might be revised. Mr. Broadwater, in, a, in an interview with, with the New York Times, said he was relieved and grateful for Miss Seabold's apology. It took a lot of courage, and I guess she's brave and weathering through the storm like I am, he said, Uh, to make that statement, it's a strong thing for her to do, understanding that she was a victim and I was a victim too. Hmm. Ms. Seabold was 18 and a student at Syracuse University when the rape that led to Mr. Broadwater's wrongful conviction occurred. In Lucky, which was published in 1999, she gives a searing account of the assault and of the trauma she subsequently endured. She also writes in detail about the trial and how she became convinced she had recognized Mr. Broadwater, whom she referred to with a pseudonym in the book as her attacker after passing him on the street months after the rape. The memoir chronicles mishaps in the case, including the fact that a composite sketch of her attacker based on her description did not resemble him let's go over that again 
including the fact that a composite sketch of her attacker, based on her description, did not resemble Mr. Broadwater. The book also describes Ms. Siebold's fear that the prosecution might be derailed after she identified a different man, not Mr. Broadwater, in a police lineup. Later, she identified Mr. Broadwater as her attacker in court. After a brief trial, he was convicted of first-degree rape and five other charges. Lucky, that the memoir, started Miss Seabold's career and paved the way for her breakout novel, The Lovely Bones, which also centers on sexual assault. It has sold millions of copies and was made into a feature film. Although Miss Seabold gave Mr. Broadwater the fictitious name Gregory Madison in the memoir, he said he had been forced to suffer the stigma of being branded a sex offender even after being released from prison. <sighs> Later, okay. So, folks, we're talking about um, a New York Times article by Alexandra Alter and Karen Zarek. Um, about um, Mr. Broadwater. Um, let's see. Oh, here we go. Um, so, Mr. Broadwater tried repeatedly over the years to hire lawyers to help prove his innocence. Those efforts were unsuccessful until recently when a planned film adaptation of Lucky helped raise new questions about the case. Timothy Musiante, who was working as an executive producer on the film version, said in an interview with The Times that he had started to doubt Miss Siebold's account after reading the memoir and script earlier this year. Mr. Musiante said that he had been struck by how little evidence was presented at Mr. Broadwater's trial. He said he had been fired from the production after raising questions about the story. It seemed like Anthony was wrong, Mr. Musiante told the Times. Mr. Musiante hired a private investigator, Dan Myers, who had spent 20 years with the sheriff's office in Onondaga County, New York, before retiring as a detective in 2020. After finding and interviewing Mr. Broadwater, Mr. Myers became convinced he had been falsely accused. Mr. Myers, who shares office space with a law firm, recommended that Mr. Broadwater hire one of the attorneys there, J. David Hammond, 
Mr. Hammond reviewed the investigation and agreed that there was a strong argument for setting the conviction aside. In their motion to vacate the conviction, Mr. Hammond and a second lawyer, Melissa K. Swartz, argued that the case rested entirely on two flawed elements. Ms. Siebold's courtroom identification of Mr. Broadwater and a now discredited method of microscopic hair analysis. So, which is now uh, referred to as junk science. Mr. Musiante's production company, Red Badge Films, is now working on a documentary about the case, Unlucky, with a second production company, Red Hawk Films. Mr. Broadwater and those who helped vacate the conviction are also participating. In her statement, Ms. Siebold uh, expressed sorrow that in seeking justice for herself, she had harmed Mr. Broadwater beyond the 16 years he was incarcerated in ways that further served to wound and stigmatize nearly a full life sentence. She also sounded anguished over a question that remains unsolved. I will also grapple, she wrote, with the fact that my rapist will in all likelihood never be known. So the question is, uh, you know, what should happen in those types of situations? Well, one of the things that could happen is that uh, Miss Siebold could co-author a book uh, with Anthony Broadwater and make sure it gets on the bestseller list and go around on all the chat shows and talk about it. Uh, the view, the, you know, the chat, the talk, all of them, uh, all the late night shows, uh, uh, the cable talk show, shows too, such as they are, uh, popularize the book, make sure it becomes a bestseller and turn all the profits from the book over to Mr. Broadwater and make sure he's financially secure. From uh, uh, what I read in other articles also, he he decided not to have children. He did find a lady who believed in him and married her, uh, who believed, but he told her he didn't want to have children because uh, he didn't want the children to, to carry the stigma of having a father that was you know, a registered sex offender. He didn't want to do that to his kids. So he really put his uh, uh, life really on on hold uh, because of that, uh, the phony rape charge. So, uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, what are we going to do that with a criminal justice system that fails black and brown people about 9.9% of the time? What can you do with a system like that? Uh, can a system that fails black and brown people 9.9% of the time, can it be repaired? I mean, that's the real question. Uh, uh, 
I think there are a lot of people out there that think that the legal system of America just needs to be fine-tuned around the edges, uh, and it'll be okay. But the truth is, even though it looks good on paper, uh, it just doesn't work for the majority of black, brown people in this country. And a lot of poor people, too. A lot of poor white people, too. It just doesn't work. So what do you do? I mean, uh, here, all legal systems in every country you go to, they all pretty much look good on paper. They all do. Uh, but in execution. Or, or could it be that uh, uh, it's not what's on the paper, it's just that the people administering the system are just so flawed that they can't do it right? I mean, could it be that the police, the prosecutors, uh, judges are just so flawed that as people that they just can't do it right? Is that it? I mean, what are we to do? And I think that's uh, that's the question. Well, folks, you've been listening to On the Edge uh, with K.A. Owens, and uh, we'll be back uh, next week.